Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbledygeek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... I'm Eric Sipple. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And each week, except when we take unnecessarily long uh, breaks away from the show, but uh, generally speaking, each week we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we will be discussing tonight. Um, This week, we close the book on spirits with the final chapters of the occasionally meandering Season 2, 212 Harmonic Convergence, 213 Darkness Falls, and 214 Light in the Dark. But uh, before we get to that, guys, let's... let's, uh, We've got some ground to cover. What have what have we been doing? It's been forever since I've talked what's to you. What's what's an avatar? Right. Yeah. Uh, I just want to I just want everyone to know. Not that there was any doubt in anyone's mind. This was all my fault. Oh, they know. They know. They they know. First, I was on vacation, and then I'm going to out myself. I forgot to watch the episodes last <laughs> week. Not. I actually didn't forget. I remembered, and then unwittingly chose to do other things and then realized I had destroyed the podcast. So this is all my fault. Uh, we've, we're now moving into a, uh, we will now be a bi-monthly podcast from now on. Oh, cool. I'm out. See ya. <laughs> and I, I personally, I've been, um, I was in DC last week and now we are fast approaching my trip to France. Oh my gosh. We're, we're less than two weeks away from me getting on a plane and getting the hell out of the US. But only if, two weeks. Wow. If, uh, I'm, well, I'm really glad you'll be out of the country, but uh, if you at home are listening to this and you've ever had the thought, boy, it sure would be fun to have a podcast, just, just <laughs> remember it is incredibly difficult to get just to get two people on the same weekly schedule, let alone three, and this is what happens. It's it you know it really is doing a, like a podcast that that is weekly that is intended to last like like a year on a single topic, especially. It's tough. I'm actually. I mean, I am really enjoying this. I'm really glad we did this, but I I won't lie. As we hit the like back third. Of this all, I am I am looking forward to not needing to worry about what I rescheduling something when I can't make a Wednesday like that. No, that's the part that I will say I won't miss about about a a weekly podcast because this is my first time ever doing a weekly podcast. I don't know how you all do it all the time, but not having to be like, oh crap, I will, I have something coming up on that Wednesday and we have to reschedule. That is like a a mental piece of stress that I, I admit I will not miss. Well, Gobbledy Geek has been grandfathered in. It's just, it's part of our damn DNA now. So not that it's necessarily easy to schedule, but you know, that that's just a part of us. We make, we make room for that in our lives, but having a second podcast that we the also Avatar do, returns is more like an uncomfortable growth. Uh, whoa, like, whoa. Oh man. Oh, oh thanks. I'm, I'm glad I'm melanoma on your life. <laughs> you, you, dude, you have been for years. Oh man. Anyways, yeah, Arlo has already. And you, uh, you have metastasized. Arlo has already said that uh, we, when the Avatar Returns uh, wraps up, we will be revisiting 
the idea of us doing multiple podcasts, multiple weekly podcasts. So who knows what the future holds. Enjoy the Avatar Returns. Enjoy us while we're here. Because God knows nobody listens to Gobbledygeek, so. But see, when but we, before, we, we, oh, go ahead, Arlo, go ahead. When we started all this, I was a loser. <laughs> with, like, uh, w- without a grown-up job and no uh, no, no significant other. And my, my life has, has rapidly changed, and I'm not keeping up. So, again, this was all my fault. Now you're a loser with a grown-up job and a social life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God! Okay. Right. Well, I did watch these episodes though, just so we're clear. Oh, okay. Well, that's good, I suppose. I mean, that means we have to let you talk at some point. But, anyways, I I, I will say also I I you know this there is a fair thing I want to say. Arlo, thank you for forgetting about the podcast. <laughs> Anytime. Um, but um, this has been the Olympics have been the last two weeks, yeah. so I have been deep in the abyss of uh, beach volleyball the last couple of weeks. And um, that has led to a lot of very late nights because the last beach volleyball match of each night was at like 11 p.m. Eastern. So, and the gold medal match was this last Wednesday. And so we had to stay up for the gold medal ceremony because our favorite team won. It was, it was a long night. It was a long, it was wonderful. I'm still kind of on a buzz from it. So, but it was, it was definitely a, uh, that was actually why we were not recording this Wednesday. So this Wednesday's recording was my fault because I pushed it for the women's beach volleyball gold medal match. Well, that, unlike all of the tomfoolery that Arlo has foisted upon us with his scheduling snafus, um, pushing Avatar Returns from Wednesday actually worked in our favor. So thank you for that, Sybil. All right. All right. I regret so nothing. Let's, let's talk. Let's talk about the the terminus point of uh, season two. Let's do this. All right. So, uh, Arlo, you're the newbie. You were going to start us off. Uh, what were your thoughts? Well, okay. Are we going to do this episode by episode, or we want to talk about all three as a whole? Uh, I almost feel like we need to talk about all three as a whole. Okay. Because this really did feel like uh, this was a nuck like serial. <laughs> it, it all. Uh, it all. Uh, went together. Okay. Um, well, in that case, uh, go ahead and give us your thoughts on this uh, this arc that wrapped out the se- the season. So when we started talking about season two six to eight months ago, whenever the fuck that was, yeah. um, you guys had prepared me for this not to be the best season of the show. In fact, I'm pretty sure I was prepared for this to be the worst season of the show. Um, and it ha- as we've discussed it. It has had some definite strengths. There have been some definite um, great moments and great elements. Um, the Nuktuk stuff, mm-hmm. uh, everything with Varric, uh, all of the Tenzin family drama. But there have also been um, some notable weaknesses. Um, the, the the season not feeling entirely uh, coherent, um, being a little meandering, underserving some characters, perhaps. Uh, underserving Cora to an extent, um, and I, I want—I I have to say these three episodes, the final three episodes of season two, display all of the season's season strengths and all of its weaknesses. I—I <laughs> I did not dislike these episodes. I liked them, and there were great things about them, but 
at the same time, I'm glad season two is over. And I'm glad I'm glad to know that this is the low point of the series because I, I will say this if you take this season as a whole and consider everything that was in the season, it is my least favorite season of all of Avatar. So oh, okay. Far. I was I was gonna say there have only been two seasons of Korra, so it's not uh it's not hard yeah. to imagine this is the worst so far, but you're including the entire Avatar yeah. world so far. Yeah. Um so I mean I, I know we'll we'll dig into specifics, but revisiting it, how do you guys feel about the season? Eric? Uh um so I, I like it more than I did um the first time. Which which has been I think the theme the whole time I've been watching it that I felt I, I think maybe it's just that the balance of the good things have outweighed the bad things, maybe because I was um prepared for the weaker elements this time through. And um, and also I wasn't like surprised like oh this is not as tight as season one so that none of that quite bothered me as much um, and I, I will admit also and this is just like the thing of coming out of something you've already watched once I am very positive on where this season leaves us going forward I really I'm excited I I was interested when it happened the first time but I'm really excited to get back to the way that this kind of upends the state of the world and very much influences the next two seasons. So I think that one of the other reasons that I'm more positive on this season than I was the first time is I appreciate that it is not a throwaway week season. It, like, like a lot of times they'll just sort of like, oh, that season never happened. This is definitely a season that has a massive impact, even if that impact isn't the two main plots exactly in uh, in the Civil War or Unalak himself. Both of those kind of don't really matter but the spiritual stuff has a really big impact on the show so i don't know all that adds up to the fact that i I still think this is probably the weakest season of avatar but i'll be honest i don't know if this show if this season was ever as meandering as the middle of season two of avatar you're right in that it probably wasn't as meandering but on the whole i still i would still take season two of avatar i i may I may. No, you know, no granted, it, it, this it, it, season it, did not have swamp benders, which is a definite <laughs> uh, point in its favor. It's 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 a it's closer than I th- would have thought it was. Maybe that's the best way of putting it. Like I, I I would have said season two of Korra was easily the weakest season of all the Avatar shows before. Now I'm like, well, I guess season two of Avatar is a little better, but it also wastes at least as many episodes as Korra does, probably more. There's probably thirteen not good episodes in season two of Avatar. Uh, I don't media- know about or mediocre or mediocre episodes. We really struggled through a good chunk of season two. Other than the other than the and it had almost the same problems where Zuko and Ira were amazing, and there was a big chunk of the middle of the season where everything involving the main plot was not good. So it's just closer than I would have expected. Still. So my my opinion of season two of Avatar lowered a little bit on my second watch. This one raised a little bit. So that's that's really the that's the headline on that. Yeah, How about you, Paul? I um I think I'm probably perhaps I'm about where I was uh, before. Uh, I think it all comes out in the wash. I think maybe the lows in in book two of Korra were a little lower than. I had felt before, but the highs maybe were a little higher. Um, I'd say overall, I think I probably agree. Um, 
obviously we'll revisit this once we finish books three and book four of Korra. But at the moment, I think this stands as the least of all of, of everything so far of Avatar and Korra. Um, but yeah, like, like Eric said, not by as much of a margin perhaps as maybe we were leading you to believe, I think Arlo. Um, well, and it sounds like both of you, like your opinion of it improved a little bit now that you, you see where it stands in the overall canon, like how it affects everything. So may, maybe part of the reason I, and again, I didn't dislike the season by any means. There, there was a lot of stuff I loved, but maybe the reason I'm as down on it as I am is because this was my first time with it and I haven't seen the, the benefits of everything that's happened and it does just feel kind of like a mess with some with some not great stuff. I, I, go ahead, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, I'll, I, I'll tell you one of the... So there are pros and cons of uh, discussing a show like this in a format like we are, where the three of us come together and just analyze it like this. Um, I, I notice... Like, perhaps when I watched this before, it was sort of subliminal. Like, I just felt... We've used the word meandering a couple times. Like, I felt maybe the season meandered a little bit or wasn't quite as focused as it should have been. Um, But now that we have discussed these, each episode of this season as it's gone along, I think it's a little more obvious where the problems were. So, like... um, Brike, which is the sort of the online abbreviation for Brian and Mike, the two creators of the series, they they've admitted in interviews that when they first broke the idea, uh, the essence of what would become book two spirits, they planned on the water tribe civil war being the main thrust of the story that that was going to be a much bigger deal. Uh, than it turned out to be. Uh, but then they brought in other writers, they built their writer's room, and as they were filling in episodes, they realized really where where their interest lay, you know, they, they were more interested in the spirit world stuff. Uh, and so the Civil War stuff kind of got uh, ignored a little bit. It got, uh, you know, left on the back burner and went unmentioned for large chunks of time i feel like so when we when we got to an episode like um i don't remember the the chapter title but uh last time we talked about this we discussed the we saw saw the uh end of the revolution we the end of the civil war as unalak's forces finally defeated the southern water tribe and that kind of came out of nowhere it felt like it kind of came out of nowhere because we hadn't really seen that uh any of the civil war stuff happening right um the Civil War stuff was really boring. I just want to point that out. I had no interest in any of the Civil War stuff. That, I had is, no... is that really true? Uh, okay. Was that true in the first couple episodes? Maybe. Okay. I'll, I'll walk that back a little bit. Maybe not. Maybe at first I thought it was was promising, but it quickly – I mean I – if their interest shifted to the spirit world, it became pretty apparent that, you know – they were no longer that interested in the Civil War, and thus I wasn't. But I do remember, I do remember even when we first started talking about this season, I was not particularly invested in the the Unalak-Tonrock uh, conflict in any of that, and I that remained true <laughs> throughout the see, entire season. See, um, I agree that the Civil War was boring, but I feel like that's a that's a product of the way that it was treated throughout the season. I feel like if it had remained the main focus, um, uh, imagine how much, uh, so we all loved the Nuck Tuck stuff and we loved the, the fact that it was, it was actually being used as, as like 
war propaganda film yeah. kind of stuff. Now imagine if the war itself was actually an engaging story. Imagine if we actually cared about the war effort and we were also watching this war propaganda film. So the Nuktuk stuff was fun and we enjoyed the fact that it was war propaganda, but we didn't, the war propaganda aspect of it, we didn't really care because we didn't, I mean, we hardly knew anything about the war and we didn't really care about the war. Yeah, the the big mistake of this of this season is that um, that the Civil War plot could have been amazing and actually very core-ish based on what last season was like. Right. The yeah. Civil War plot could have really worked. And the Spirit plot could have really worked, and I actually think it did in a lot better ways. But the combination of the two don't add up. The Civil – like they tried to make them the same by making Unalak be the same bad guy for both. But that actually just muddled things even more. And so none of that quite adds up. You have two plots that could have worked and thus have subplots that really do work. The Nuktuk stuff and the Varric stuff is phenomenal. Yeah. And the Wan stuff and the things about like the like the spiritual history of the Avatar also really really amazing. So there are aspects of those two plots which are great. They just don't add up together. And in a lot of ways you know, Arlo, maybe the best way I would put this season, like, in the way that these things, some things are really good and some things don't come together at all, is I might analogize this to, like, season four of Angel in terms of it has good stuff, it has stuff that doesn't work, but it also strongly sets up a version of the world that leads to some of the best show. Okay, cool. So, and I think that um, Korra in season three pays off some of that, and season four, I think, pays it off in spades, but it's definitely that kind of thing where... You know, because the season four of Angel was like that. You had some amazing stuff, some what the fuck stuff, and any given one of those threads, had it been paid attention to properly, probably could have added up to a pretty great season. But together, created sort of a confusing mess, and that's kind of what Cora was. And you end up at the end of the season with basically that, like the Civil War just sort of ends because Cora needs to get into a spiritual battle, which is also kind of interesting, but since we've backed into it so late in the game, I'm not sure the rules of it all <laughs> make sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 all very it's all very weird. Um but not bad. So let's talk about the actual details because I think there's some really amazing stuff in this that that really works. So what so, de- what details do you want to talk about? Well, I want to know Arlo, what did you like the most? Let's start there. What what worked for you in these three episodes? Let's see. What did I like the most? I'll tell you what I like the most. Um, And it's pretty much what I like the most throughout the season, besides Varric, because we only get one Varric scene. And it's that was sad, but but it's good. It's 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 a good Varric scene. Um, Hold on. What does he say? Uh, He's like, Julie, commence Operation Freedom. Do the thing. That was (laughs) that was phenomenal. but no, uh, what I liked best was all of the stuff with Tenzin, and uh, this episode or these episodes paid off um, his family drama and his arc of trying to come to terms with the fact that he was not the person. He is not his father. He was not Eng, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think that pays off incredibly well in these episodes. How good? I mean, the Tenzin. Okay. The Tenzin stuff is so good. And this is maybe where I was drawing the analogy with season two of, of Avatar. The Tenzin stuff is strong in the same like and outside of the plot in the same way that Zuko and Iroh mm-hmm. is yeah. strong. You get this like immense deepening of the character, of a character you already were starting to like. Like you are like Tenzin was already a strong character. But 
every single thing with Tenzin this season works. All of it works. And it pays off the the wandering in the fog stuff and him having to accept that and that leading to him finding Jinora is it's really powerful. I, I loved the whole the fog of the lost souls and the way that that paid off and I loved the I loved the resolution of that with him slowly leading them, you know, out of the fog. And I also, yeah. I love the fact that uh, for several episodes leading up to this, the fact that Tenzin is, is book smart has been played uh, either for laughs or as kind of a hindrance because he really, you know, he discovers that he has never, or he reveals he's never been able to enter the spirit world and, he he has all this knowledge, but he's never been able to use it practically. Um, whereas like his daughter, Janora seems to be a natural and, and so on and so forth. Um, and now he finally comes to terms with that. And it finally pays off that, uh, you know, his, his knowledge of the ancient scrolls and the ancient texts and all that uh, serves him. It's the whole way he's able to find the fog of lost souls and rescue Janora. And yeah, that that scene where he comes, so so they're in the fog, you know, Boomy hallucinates and sees the cannibals. Then you know, Kaya swears that she has no family, and they they abandon Tenzin. Um, and that scene where he's wandering around and comes face to face with uh, with Aang, um, and, you know, and has the you know, and Aang t- this appearance of Aang tells him, you know, you're trying to hold on to a false perception of yourself. You are not me and you should not be me. You are Tenzin. And it, it, and then the fog clears and he finds his family and he finds Janora. I, I, I cried, you guys. I cried. Nice. It is. It's, it's so beautiful that I can even forgive having to see Zhao again. <laughs> yes! Oh my god! When Zhao showed up, like, my notes in all caps, holy fuck, it's Zhao! It's Zhao the Conqueror, the Moonslayer is back! I will what catch a, it, Victory will be mine! What a, what a fitting punishment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. That was beautiful. But no, uh, the, the, the Tenzin, it, it's like, the, the Tenzin stuff really works for me a lot because... It, and it's it's the perfect reflection of what makes Korra really strong, which is it's both its own series and a legacy series. And everything we learn about Tenzin reflects more. It tells us more about Aang as an adult, which is something we never got to see and probably will never get to see. Mm-hmm. And we come out with a really deeper understanding of who Aang grew up to be based on what he produced from his children. Because it's not just Tenzin. The stuff with Bumi and Kaya adds to that. Like the dysfunction of those siblings also adds to that. So all of that adds up to like this. You understand Avatar better in some ways because we learn who this child grew up to be, which is one of the things that having a child as a main character steals from you when it just ends with them at 12. Mm-hmm. And so we get all of that too. And and I, there's not a single misstep in the Tenzin plot in season two. It is absolutely strong, and I wouldn't give it up for the world. I would agree with that. It is. It was the strongest thread running through the season. A- absolutely. Though I did have a question when, you know, they're leaving the fog of lost souls, and he is he's reunited with his family, and they're leaving. We just see all of these other people wandering around. <laughs> couldn't could, couldn't he have helped them too? Been like, hey, uh, follow us. Well, he. he... He doesn't know why all those people are there. Instead, he leaves them to perish in purgatory? Yeah. I mean, he doesn't know why all those people are there. Zhao deserves to be there, right? That's true, but Zhao is so ineffective to begin with. He's not a threat. 
I mean, he couldn't. Chow's dra- a little. Chow's uh, a pussycat. Come on. <laughs> he couldn't grab everybody and drag them out. Chow but... killed the moon spirit. That's right. And and uh, it was the. I don't remember which one was killed and which one survived. Twee and Law. Whichever the other one is, the one that took him here, isn't it? Yeah. Wasn't that the one that drug you know drug him underwater? I can't remember now, but. Yeah. So yeah, this was his punishment for killing, uh, the moon spirit. I, I'm okay with with uh, tension leaving people behind. I actually can uh, sort of headcanon this to be that it, that he, without a connection to those people, he wouldn't be able to. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, did anybody else catch the fact that uh, Azula voiced the dark spider spirit? No. And, no. And, I. And wow. and the spirit mushroom, by the way. She voiced the spirit mushroom. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's incredible. Th- those were both Gray Delisle Griffin. Apparently, when this uh, when this season was originally airing, uh, you know, again, a thing that we miss by watching it the way we we have been, and not when it was airing, is we're missing all of the the online discussion and the and the creators like you know, releasing little sneak peeks and hints or whatever. Uh, people had known for a while that Gray Delisle Griffin was going to come back in this season uh, to provide a voice and. So everyone was speculating that we were going to get to see Azula again. And then when this happened, people were pissed off. So having not had that buildup, I thought that was great. I thought, uh, you know, knowing that she did the voice of the dark spider spirit and that silly spirit mushroom, I thought that was fantastic. But uh, apparently people that that were expecting Azula and got this were upset. Oh, look, the the, the mushroom is exactly as great as Azula. Come on. (laughs) I actually can't see a difference between the mushroom and Azula. Personally, I, I completely agree. I think her sp- I think her spirit projection would basically be a hallucinatory mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Hey, and Iroh uh, was back again, and he he brought a fox with him this time. Oh, ten, yeah. ten, ten, I didn't, hadn't even thought about the fact that Tenzin would have known Iroh. I, yeah. know, I I had neither. I love the fact that all three of Aang's kids were there and they all like they all recognized they all knew who Iroh was, Iro was and and uh just the look on their faces when they saw him again that was beautiful. That w- that was beautiful. So so other good things that I thought worked um I even though it's not brilliant I like the pay- the final payoff of the Eska and Desna stuff with Bolin sort of owning up mm-hmm. to like being a bit of a child. Mhm. Basically, yeah. like I, I like that he takes some responsibility for the. I mean, Esk is obviously like not a, a stable person, but <laughs> um, but he did like jump into that and then never communicate to her that he wanted out. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like I like that given all the weird stuff with Bolin over the course of the season, which I, I I still can't really, I can't I can't make sense of the Ginger Bolin stuff still at this point, but. <laughs> But this does serve as sort of a correcting measure. I, I did like it. I, I I feel like we, maybe this is because I knew it was coming, but uh, Arlo, you can tell me, did you feel as this season was pro- progressing, did you sort of get a sense that that uh, Eska and Desna were, were starting to kind of give some side eye to their dad? Did you? I mean, pretty much from the first appearance of Eska and Desna. Like I, I, I was pretty sure that's where that was going to go. Okay. All right. Um, um I so two things about the Eska and Desna thing. Uh, first, in relation to Bolin, um, I did like that, uh, but I kind of I think possibly I would have preferred 
that the the whole Bolin expressing his love for Eska in order to to get her help. Um, I I think I would have preferred if it was either like a actually him acting, like uh, when when Mako said that was fantastic acting or whatever, and he was like, yeah, yeah, sure, that was an act. If that had actually been him acting, or if it had paid off with them actually getting together, as it is with them looking like they're going to get together with it not being an act. Bolin is completely serious about it. And then Desna's like, or Eska's like, well, no, it was the heat of the moment. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, it's cool, but I, I think I would have preferred if it had either been an act or if it had actually paid off and they had, they'd gotten together. Both of those possibilities had occurred to me as well, but I, I think this works and I think it actually, it, it kind of makes some sense of the, the, the ginger, stuff and even some of the you know the the nuck tuck stuff like his big hero turn bolin like you said eric bolin basically admits in a way to being a child and he just you know he is really serious when he says you know i love you let's face the end of the world together but at, you know outside the heat of the moment you know eska says eternal darkness was upon us i became caught up in the moment i i, I have said that line many times yeah right in my life trust me yeah um, and Bolin admits that that he did too. So I, I just feel like that's Bolin's personality. He becomes very, very caught up in the moment, and uh, he has to sort of remove himself from the situation to realize his true feelings. Mm-hmm. It worked for me. Yeah, I mean, the, this you're you're right. This definitely is a trait of uh, of Bolin. That he was this a trait of Bolin in the first season. Uh, I think, I mean, I think so. He's, he, I mean, he fell for Korra pretty quick. That's true. And then got over Korra pretty quick. That's right. But he did, but he he did get really emotionally invested all at once. Right. To that. Bolin needs to figure himself out, man. (laughs) He needs to go on a walkabout. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Bolin needs to, uh, walk through the fog of lost souls. (laughs) Um, all right. Well, let's talk about some characters that, uh, we've also mentioned that maybe some characters were a little underserved in this season. So we already talked about how great Tenzin's arc was. Um, uh, Korra is obviously the main focus of the series, but you know, how do we feel that her story arc pays off? And I would maintain that there are two characters. We early on in the season we talked about how poorly they were using uh, Bolin. I think we've walked that back now that we've seen where it has gone. Like I think we're, yeah. I think we're pretty happy with Bolin at this point. Yeah. But uh, I, we could question Korra. I am questioning Korra. We, let's talk about that. And then Asami and Lin were were criminally underused. Yeah, Asami just didn't really have anything to do. There was the stuff with Varric and Future Industries, but th- she was basically a prop mm-hmm. uh, for that. And then Lynn, I think, you know, I I hadn't it was it took you guys explaining, you know, the the many faults of of Lynn Beifong this season for me to sort of come to terms with the fact that it was almost kind of character assassination. <laughs> Her uh, her general uh, in- incompetence. Yeah, we we, we will we will. I, Lynn really bothered me this season, especially because and Lynn Lynn has a fair amount of plot in future seasons. Yeah, like some really serious character development in future seasons, which which makes this season even more baffling because she's a tough, awesome cop in season one, and she gets really great stuff in seasons three and four. I don't understand what was going on this season. 
Like, this is just one of those situations where it feels like they wrote... Sometimes you, you back yourself into a plot, you know the end point you want to get to, and so you start writing everything around, making sure you can get to that end point, and that's kind of what it felt like with Mako's investigation, mm-hmm. where they wanted him to have that, like, intrepid cop who no one wants him to solve the crime kind of thing going on. And then, but the problem is, is that his his captain is Lin Beifong and not some idiot. Right. But the only way that plot works is if you have someone corrupt or an idiot as the captain. And they didn't, weren't going to make her corrupt. So that means they had to make her an idiot. Yeah. And I think that was what was going on there. And I feel like there was a really half-hearted stab at showing that she was too distracted to, you know, be paying much attention or to to be making the right decisions because there was the stuff um there was that scene where she was having like a heated discussion with the president and all that stuff but that was it was such it was such a half-hearted stab that it didn't even work as a justification it was it did just turn into her being an idiot because i I think there is a, a version of this that you could you could play her as just being so overwhelmed like with all the stuff with the president if they had played that angle up a little bit more uh you know and sort of removed her from the situation that would have made more sense you you know what's interesting about that whole president thing so virtually every time we see lynn this season she's 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 saddled with the president like that's her role here um and i feel like in previous watches of this season i i kind of always because again i wasn't watching it as deeply as I am for this podcast, I feel like I was always kind of annoyed by the president. Like he, he, he was an obstacle in the way of our characters. They, they wanted to get stuff done and he was preventing stuff from getting done. Watching it more closely and talking about it with you guys, I feel like he's meant to be the burden or the distraction for Lynn. He's the thing that is keeping her from fully participating in the story, but he's really like, I kind of like this president. He's pretty reasonable. President Ryko is doing everything he should be doing. He's not letting himself get drawn into a civil war between two nations. Uh, he's not letting himself be manipulated by the emotional outbursts of, let's face it, our main characters are all teenagers. Um, so, like, he he's not unreasonable in anything that he's done. So, imagining him as a as the burden, the you know, the problem that Lin has to deal with is a little less rational to me. I'd vote for him. I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's not talk about politics. <laughs> um, so uh, what about Asami? I mean, what, what about Asami? There was, there was nothing there. Yeah. yeah. See, I actually, I prefer Asa- what happened with Asami than Lynn, where Asami right. doesn't come off as like, it didn't feel like a not, it didn't feel off character for Asami mm-hmm. this year. And I think that this goes into the, them deciding to go in a different direction, which is that in the civil war plot, Asami would have had a lot to do mm-hmm. in the spiritual plot. Her use was a little more diminished. Right. So I think that it had a lot to do with it. She just wasn't, you know, she's not a bender. And she's not really connected to spiritual stuff at this point, so it's not like it's a, there's an easy character tie to this weird spiritual war thing that's going on. So it's not like she doesn't have anything to do, but it was obviously like they had gone in a direction with the plot, and, and Asami was tied very deeply to the Varric stuff, which was tied very deeply to the Civil War stuff. And once we broke off of that, shifting characters around mid-season can get a little difficult. And I think that she just got left behind. Yeah, we we did get. I want to give a shout out to the the 
assault on the spirit portal sequence, uh, the big action sequence where Asami did get, I mean, it wasn't really her moment because all she was doing was flying the plane, but still like that assault method was her idea. She got to fly the plane. She was a little more involved there than, uh, she had been for a while and it was a fantastic sequence oh that sequence is awesome that sequence is great the the her flying around with bolin and mako on their wings mm-hmm. and i particularly love uh the the way bolin the the earthbender who was like you know i'm an i'm an earthbender on the wing of a plane hundreds of feet in the air so no i'm not okay but uh, i love what he did i love the fact that he had a backpack filled with the those explosives and he had the remote detonator that was fantastic. That was pretty awesome. So I basically Bolin aside from Tenzin, Bolin has come out the best for me this season. I, I, I am a huge Bolin fan by the end of book two. I love Bolin. Let's talk about, um, Mako and because one thing Asami did do was Mako. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they rekindled their thing, kind of, so, sort of, um, and then because uh, I know we talked a lot last season about how this this teenage love triangle was kind of a drag, and it took until the season two finale for them to really put the kibosh on that. Mm-hmm. In, in a in a mature way, I like the way that it yes. wrapped up. I just wish it hadn't I taken agree. so long. I agree. I I, agree. I I really like that scene where Cora and Mako both admit to themselves that this is not going to work. It's over, but that they'll always love each other. That that was that was very good. But it did take a long time to get to that point. Yeah, I am glad they got to that point, though. Speaking of Cora, though, mm-hmm. uh, we mentioned that she perhaps was one of the underserved characters, which is a little ironic since she's the protagonist and has perhaps the most screen time of any of them. Um, yeah, her, we, we'd mentioned, so I, in theory, I like the fact that her arc this season was sort of, um, we, we knew and loved her as the, uh, the, 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 the bold, you know, you have to deal with me avatar and her sort of, you know, in order to engage with the spiritual side of herself, she has to temper those um, those urges. She has to become more calm, more centered. <laughs> Although her I, final fight in this in this season is still her throwing a giant person into a mountain, but whatever. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, I, I like that, but I'm sort of maybe you guys can help me. I'm struggling with why didn't I feel that connected to like Cora was not connected with her spiritual side. I was not connected with my Cora side for a lot of this season. Well, she, I mean, she's not in three or four episodes this season. I think there's Effectively. Only one episode. She's actually not in. Well, no, I mean the one episodes she is not in. I mean, she's in the one episodes, but she's in the one episodes to bookend the one storyline. Yeah. So that's two episodes. Okay, that's and true. then the episode before then, when she was missing was another one that she just wasn't in at all. And yeah, and then right. she is she is unconscious for a good deal of the finale. Well, not unconscious, but like depressed and out of it, basically. Yeah. So and and actually, she's sort of like so she's a non she's not in she's effectively not in three episodes and is in a non factor in about another episode's worth of time. Uh, yeah, actually, 
I'm sorry, finish your thought. Go ahead. No, so, you know, like, that that makes a big difference when you're talking about, like, how strong a character's art can be in a season. So I'll tell you, I mean, I, I've, I've already mentioned before, um, you know, that I, I struggle a little bit with the character of Korra. Um, I, f- I feel like perhaps one of my struggles with her this season is that it's not really so much that she she didn't have as much screen time or that we had three episodes that didn't have her in it or whatever, but, um, and this is an issue that maybe, possibly, I have had at certain points with Buffy Summers. There's a, there's a very repetitive cycle of, and it's, it's, I think it's highlighted. It's spotlighted in these episodes, uh, a repetitive cycle of Cora is very powerful. She says something really badass, then almost gets her, her ass kicked, uh, before having some sort of revelation and breaking free in order to say something else badass. And that happens like specifically in these episodes that happens like four times um, where she, she faces Ver you know, she not Varric, she faces Unalak and says, I'm not going to let you free Vatu. Uh, and then he frees Vatu and I'm not. And then she says to Vatu, well, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to lock you back up for another 10,000 years. Then she gets her ass kicked. And then she's like, and then she gets thrown down into the crack in the ice and is about to get crushed. And, and uh, she's like, you can't win. Or, I don't know. It's just, there's so she's, much. Uh, she's tenacious, Paul. Okay, well, that's a positive so, spin to put on that. Sure. I'm not going to blame Cora for this, so I'm going to blame bad plotting for this bit, um, which is that this ending. So, okay, I, I don't know if we can keep talking around the major storyline, so it might be better, best if we just start talking okay. about the main storyline if we're going to talk about Cora. But um, th- this fight. Okay, so this is another one of those plots that feels reverse engineered to me. Mm-hmm. There is an endpoint. And the endpoint is really bold and yeah. pretty exciting, but they have to get there. In order to get there, it's like okay, well, in order for the her to have so like you know we hit the point where Vatu's plan is they're going to destroy Rava and thus break the Avatar, and he's going to become the new Avatar. Vatu is going to power Unalak and become Unavatu and be the Avatar. Okay, so they beat the shit out of Rava and effectively cut off. Korra's connection to her past lives. But it's okay. In order to get to that point, you have to rip the spirit out of Korra, and you have to basically kill Rob. And then, okay, well, once you've done that, uh, how has she actually beat him? And now we have this Unavatu thing. Well, like, well, crap. Now we have to come up with a way of her fighting Unavatu and winning that. So it's like, okay, we have to stop Rava from getting out, but that can't work because we need Rob. We need, sorry, we need... We can't stop Vatu from getting out because Vatu has to destroy Rava. But once Vatu's destroyed Rava, then we have this problem where we have Unavatu running around, and now we have to solve that problem. So you end up with three separate battles. You have the stopping Vatu from getting out battle. You have what would normally be the end battle, which is Vatu is out, so now we have to stop him merge with Unalak. Mm-hmm. But then you, that doesn't work either because you need to break the Avatar-like connection. So now you have to have a third version of that battle... And that's where, like, you start to feel that repetitiveness of, like, it, it makes Korra's brashness feel ridiculous because she can't be allowed to win the battle because they need to have another battle five minutes later. Does that make sense? That's sort of where I think this goes wrong with Korra. It does, and I, I feel like what I was saying isn't, like, wasn't necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying that Korra, her, like, is a bad character because she was doing that. As much as I think maybe I was saying the same thing you were. I, I was I was just saying for whatever reason, the 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 constant repetition of that 
she's a badass, gets her ass kicked, learns a lesson, is a badass. Um, it, it got tiresome after a while. There's only so many times I can see that, especially when it's, it's crammed like four times into one or two episodes. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't and it's necessarily... also with the, and it's also with the bad guy whose threat we don't really believe. Right. So when Korra can't take on Unalak in a battle, it starts to feel like, well, what's going on? Right. Why is the Avatar not able to take on even a very good waterbender? She took on – what the hell is his name um, from the first season? Oh, yeah. Him. <laughs> I, I know who you're talking about. The other uh, – uh, yeah, anyways. Um, the, the other Tar- Unalak? Tarlock. Tarlock. Tarlock, okay. She took on Tarlock in the, in the chambers, and Tarlock was a pretty formidable foe. So, and there's never really any justification for why Unalak is as dangerous mm-hmm. as he is in battle. So it, it, it all adds up to making this battle feel really, really long and full of lots of setbacks that maybe aren't earned. Mm-hmm. And thus it damages the main character a little bit because it makes the main characters the way you would normally deal with this main engage with this main character can't happen because she's being jerked around by the plot the whole time. Okay. So part and parcel with this whole, I mean, we're talking, I want to save the ultimate end. Eric, you just referenced, you know, we, we get to an end point and it's pretty awesome. Let's save that. But mixed in with all this weird Unavatu stuff is <laughs> let's, let's talk about the spirit stuff in general. Uh, I want to know if any of the spirit stuff. So the entire this entire book is called Spirits, um, and it, it kind of has set its goal, or at least we thought the goal of this season was to to dive into the spirit world and kind of make sense of all this. Did it? Did any? Did anything ultimately end up making sense, um, or was or was it at least left mysterious in an appropriately mysterious way? So I'm thinking of things like it just feels like the rules around the spirits and the spirit world and, and now Unovatu and, and what it is he's capable of doing. Very, very muddy and imprecise, to, to put it mildly. Um, I mean, you've already talked about the, the fact that, you know, they, they have to destroy Rava, uh, so Vatu has to get out. Why, like, why would Vatu even agree in the first place to bond with Unalak? Why wouldn't he just, once he's free of the Tree of Time, why wouldn't he just continue being the evil kite of evil? That he was I, before. I have a thought on that one. Okay, go ahead. Well, th- look how successful Rava was bound to the Avatar. For 10,000 years, he was locked up, and Rava basically had the was able to change the world. Yeah, but she wasn't keeping him locked up for 10,000 years. She locked him up, and then... and then. Oh, but I mean, she was more successful than... Th- their battles before had never left any lasting impression... Oh, I world. see. I see. She managed to lock him up because, because yeah, she 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 managed yeah, okay. to lock him up because she bound with yeah. um with Juan. But then also, then she had ten thousand years of the world basically being all about her, right? As a result, okay. so and all then right. we, and, and through and she also was able to affect the mortal coil, so to speak, because she was tied to a human, and uh, thus the human world was all tied around it too. Anyways, right. That's that's my thought. All right. So let me ask this. Uh, since Rava was well, first of all, there's the whole thing about Rava getting pulled out of Korra, and why? Why has that never been a possibility before? But okay, maybe only Vatu could do that. Um, since Rava has been removed from Korra, technically, doesn't that mean that she's not the Avatar? So without 
Rava, the Rava spirit inside her, why is she still able to bend multiple elements? Why has, doesn't she revert to just being the waterbender that she is naturally? I, I had that same thought. I can head cannon around this. I have no idea. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I you know, I, I could come up with some explanations for it, but um, which, which is that you know these powers could be granted. They were they've been in her since she was born. It's she is not a waterbender who. Actually, okay. I'm actually going to go with this explanation because I think this makes sense. I think I think uh, it's I think I hear what you're saying, and maybe it makes sense. Yeah, she was she was born the Avatar. Juan was not born the Avatar, right? Um, but she was born, and Rava was certainly a part. Like Rava was bound to her spirit, but the the she is a reincarnation of those people, mm-hmm. and now like so she was born a, a multi bender effectively. So okay. I think losing Rava at that point more cuts off her connection to the spirit world than anything. Okay, I'll buy that. So here's the big one. <laughs> if I if I squint my brain just right, I feel like I can maybe just a little bit almost make sense of the or, or at least maybe not care so much about all of the giant blue cosmic kaiju Korra stuff that happens. But my question is, why should I have to do that? Like, yeah, why, why, why? Like I, as that was happening, I was just, I was baffled. I, what, what, why did, why? So Eric, you're the resident <laughs> kaiju super fan. So first of all, how did you feel about getting a big kaiju battle at the end here? And did it make a fuck of sense to you? Okay, well, first, there's there's a really important piece of this that I want to call out, which is cool, which is that Korra gets to the kaiju moment by having a path to the cosmos moment like Aang did. Yes, I did in like season that. two. I did and, like that. And there's the the giant space version of her like there was the giant space version of Aang. Yes. When he went to there. So and I so, I, so OK, I like what leads to it because it is Korra accepts her destiny in this moment in a way that Aang rejected it in that moment. So there's a nice mirroring there. True, yes. That leads to it. Okay. So, no. All right. Giant Kaiju Korra makes no sense. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, she, okay, so she's tapping into the universal energy, and she's astral projecting, and she's creating a spirit version. I think I think there's enough with this world that I can buy the plot mechanics right. of what's happening there. She goes into the Tree of Life. She t- taps into universal energy. She does what Aang couldn't do, which was obviously like the guru really wanted Aang to get in touch with his cosmic self. Right, yeah. And and so – and I also wondered, did Aang ever bother to do that? Did Aang ever get in touch with his cosmic self? <laughs> did, he, or... did he ever go back and fill in those blanks? <laughs> I bet he didn't because I don't think he was ever able to give up the things that he would need to do. His blocks he could have never gotten through. But anyways, on a visual level, I kind of like Kaiju Korra versus Una – Unavato. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's it's a neat visual. It's very different from anything we've saw. I'm not sure it really works, and I'm not sure that as a different thing, it's really the right different thing. So, um, my my positivity on it is a little mixed. So I think it's kind of neat, but it's also not the right Korra thing. Not the right Avatar verse thing. Probably it's not that I don't think it fits at all. I just don't think it quite fits, and it's a little off. And why can, feel... why can she shoot lasers from her? chest yeah see that you know i I, i'm not even sure i like i'm not saying this was like a complete unmitigated disaster i'm i don't i don't think that at all but even on like an aesthetic level like it it looked cool like the the there's that moment where they're both shooting like beams of energy from their chest at each other and i rolled my eyes so hard they fell out of my face okay well let's just i want you to so this is this is going to get filed under 
things I am glad this show set up. Oh, okay. It, okay. All I'm right. not sure it makes sense exactly right now. I kind of like it. I'll be honest. I kind of like it. But I'm going to say that the show takes the spirit laser idea and builds it into the mythology in a way that I think pays off on some interesting cool stuff later on. Okay. Okay. Does I'm, that mean does, does that mean we're getting chest benders? <laughs> because uh, <laughs> I want to sign up. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious. I don't know what you're referencing, so this will be interesting to get to. Uh, I have one one last uh, crazy spirit world rules or whatever question. What the fuck was up with the Deus Ex Genora? Awesomeness. I mean. The character of Janora is awesome, and I I love that she kind of saved the day. But what the fuck was that? What do you mean? That's a good question. What what, what, what was what, she, what did she do? Okay, so here here's I've I watched this last night, and then I watched it again today to prepare for when I was taking notes and everything. And on my second viewing of it today, I sort of fan wanked this. I I sort of I sort of worked through it. I, I don't know what Janora was actually doing when when Cora is about to be uh, uh, valumed away or whatever whatever the fuck it is. Janora <laughs> um, uh, floats down from the sky as this glowing little uh, ball, and then she like f- flashes some light. Oh wait, no no, she found she she recovered the fragments of Rava. Okay, well, so my, I didn't really have an explanation, but I was like, I guess what she's done is now Korra can see the remnants of, uh, of Rava inside Unavatu. So that's that was kind of how she saved the day. But I didn't understand. So did we did we get a scene of her finding the remnants of, of Rava? Well, I think I think I well, I mean I think that's kind of what it was that she she spiritually came down and found the remnants of Rava of uh, Rava there. Okay. And that's what it is. It's that Janora, in through her awesome spiritual meditation powers, um, has basically discovers that um, that Rava is still there. Right. Basically. I mean, I mean, we did get the little flashback to Rava explaining to Juan that uh, you know I can no more destroy darkness than Vatu could destroy light. So we knew that Rava wasn't totally dead, and Janora. I mean, I realized that Korra went looking for Rava inside Vatu, and he was like, you're looking for something that's no longer there. Then Janora comes down, she does her little twinkly, uh, you know, Glinda, good witch of the North thing, and all of a sudden, Korra can find the remnants of Rava. So I get that. I was just a little bit, I don't know, Janora all of a sudden felt a little bit like Jean Grey for me. Wow. That doesn't bother me. Okay. All right. That's cool. <laughs> no, I get it. I, I mean, this is definitely like a high ascension of Janora at that point, but I think, I think it's pretty I cool. I feel like a lot of this finale with all of the harmonic convergent stuff and the kaiju battle and, and, and all of this was really straining for an epic feel that didn't entirely feel earned. And I think it's because this, a lot of the spirit mythology even though the spirit world was very cool, we got some super cool stuff in the spirit world, didn't quite come together. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of... So I, I believe I have mentioned this before, maybe back when we were discussing Avatar, um, that I'm not 
I'm not always a fan of when series like this are sort of like, oh, and here's this super important new concept we've never mentioned before that we're going to mention now, and it's you know going to play a pivotal role in the end of the story. Um, I, the, the And I actually think I may have made this exact comparison. The terrible example I always go back to um, is in the uh, – I think it's the – yeah, the the end of the Buffy season eight comic books, which by that point it completely you know mm-hmm. jumped jump the the rails. Uh, they're like, oh, the seed of wonder right. is this crazy important magic thing that has always been there and it's been destroyed. It's super important, you guys. We've never mentioned it ever before, but it's crazy important, and it's called the seed of wonder. <laughs> so when is that when, when uh, Angel and Buffy fucked a universe into existence? It was after that. It was like, oh, this is like the reason. Wasn't there something where like magic wasn't working? I don't know. It's been a while. I'm. Those were not very good comic books. <laughs> I digress. So, so when I get to where Tinson's like, but wait, the Tree of Time. I'm like, are are you fucking kidding me? See, am I about to get Seed of Wonder? <laughs> see, I kind of, uh, I I see what you're saying here, and uh, and. Uh, I agree a little bit, but I kind of rolled with that because that was another opportunity for uh, Tenzin to have knowledge of something because he had read all he had spent his entire life doing nothing. He was a book nerd. You're right. You're right. But, you know, like this is the tree of time and legends say that its roots bind the spirit and physical worlds together. Like, shouldn't we have fucking heard about that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> before the very end of season two, right when shit's about to go down. I don't know. Stuff like that bothers me. And I feel like Avatar did that at least once. I can't remember exactly when. But it, I think it's just it goes part and parcel with these stories. And this is just. Well, energy bending in Avatar. That. Yeah, it was the it was the the deus ex uh, turtle. <laughs> That's whatever. right. That's right. But uh, but this this makes me want to bring up the whole. Uh, Cora has lost. So she, Cora gets her her mojo back uh, by the end of this. She gets her groove back. Uh, she gets her groove back, but she apparently does not reconnect with her past lives. Um, and you know, on the one hand, that seems like a deliberate choice that the show made because she gives the whole speech at the end about how I, you know, remembering our past is important, but it's also important to forge our own future or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I assume that's why they had to sever her tie to her past lives. Um, however, I feel like, especially the scene where we see that happen when Rava is being destroyed and we're watching the, the links to the past dissolve that played like it was supposed to be super important. Like that was supposed to be really meaningful. Like, especially when we see like Aang dissolve and then we see uh, Kiyoshi and uh, Roku and all them. Uh, and and lastly, we see Juan disappear. Like that felt really weighty and momentous. But by the end, I just don't feel like that came across as a big deal. And the Tree of Time is almost a symptom of, or is is almost a problem here because the Tree of Time kind of served the purpose of her past lives. So she can't consult her past. In fact, it's even Bolin even says, "Why can't you just?" talk to your past lives to get the answer. And she's like, I can't anymore. That connection is lost. And, and Tenzin's like, Oh, well in that case, here's another way to do the exact same thing. That's you're right. 
You're right, and honestly, as far as that moment uh, is supposed to feel momentous, but at the end, it just it didn't really feel like a big deal. Is how I felt about a lot of a lot of the climactic stuff uh, in the finale with uh, harmonic convergence and all of that. Okay, so I feel like I want to talk about Unalak. As much okay. as I never in my life would ever want to talk about Unalak, I want to talk about Unalak right. um, because I feel like. I mentioned before that I, I don't think any of this this stuff, the spirit world stuff, any of the Tree of Time stuff, none of it's an unmitigated disaster. Unalak is a complete failure. <laughs> I think from start to finish, Unalak as a concept, as a character, is bad. Because there's really nothing there. He is a, a, an incredibly generic, boring villain who I was never invested in, even at the beginning. And there's a moment here... Uh, in the episode actually called Harmonic Convergence, where he... Uh, so my, I, I had written a note during this scene, Unalak is so goddamn generic. And then he gives this line delivery that I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but it sounds a lot like this. The Avatar will be here soon. She has no choice. Like, yeah. like he's, he's like he's like twirling his mustache. <laughs> like it was, it's it's like the peak of generic, the ge, generic bad guy. Um, and this becomes a problem because he then is like, "I will be the Dark Avatar." Right. And yeah. when we get to the whole Dark Avatar moment, I'm like, I I feel like that that is a concept could be cool. You could do the inverse of the Avatar. But when you when it's strapped to a bad guy as boring and assembly line generic as Unalak, it it becomes a very lame idea very quickly. It, it seems almost too simplistic. The Dark Avatar. I'll tell you why it it's particularly frustrating to me that Unalak, even by the end, when all is said and done, he remains as generic and boring a villain as we were joking he was at the beginning, because. <clears throat> I feel like he almost became less interesting as the season went on. Because his motivation... All right, so so I kind of wanted to ask how we thought, and, and we've gotten to this, so I, how we think he compares to villains of the past. Uh, I mean, obviously Amon, but even like Ozai or whatever. Uh, Amon, and we talked about this in book one, Amon had... There were elements of Amon that were almost sympathetic, or at least we could understand like where this character was coming from. And in fact, when the season started, Arlo, you were so excited that the villain was like, you know, maybe not even all that villainous. Um, and Unalak's motivation here at times seems to be, I mean, he gives that line, oh, you think what Avatar Wan did was good, driving almost all the spirits from the world? Um, the Avatar hasn't brought balance, only chaos. Um, so, and and when we watched in the uh, the two-parter beginnings, when we saw um, Wan, like, separating, like, closing the portals and sending all the spirits back to live in the spirit world, we were, uh, we were like, is that, was that a good thing? So, the fact that Unalak, at least on the surface, his motivation is to open the portals and, and, free the spirits uh, because they were never meant to be locked up like that in the first place. That's a motivation I could almost get behind. Yeah. Well, and you bring up a good point, Paul, which is that the, we're talking about like periphery things that didn't work. Even the stuff with like the tree, the tree of time and all this stuff. The real problem with this series, this season rather, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like slipping into to British mode with this season 
is Unalak, because Unalak is a failure of a villain, and he is a complete and total failure Yes, as a villain. And I mean, and I will say, he I don't know if he's the worst villain ever, because I think Zhao is also <laughs> a complete and total failure as a villain. It's just that he was the first season villain, so our expectations were a little lower mm-hmm. at that point. But he's basically the same as Zhao, where like Zhao is mm-hmm. stomping around, effectively twisting his mustache until he can find a godfish to stab. and and that is literally the end of his plan like there's no after point for Zhao after he kills the moon spirit it's just like I did it oops (laughs) well things suck now and that's the end of that character and actually actually, Unalak even gets the line uh, and now 10,000 years of darkness begins or something like that yeah I know (laughs) oh my god it's oh Mm. so so Unalak is really the the weakness here Paul because you make a good point that like one thing Korra does really well, generally, and is that the philosophy of their villains is uh, was generally really good. And I know I'm speaking kind of to future villains a little here, but you know, Amon's has a really interesting philosophy. He's also terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like he's a good mix of his powers are 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 nightmarish to Korra and the Benders, and he's executed really well. And his philosophy is really interesting. Unalak is another character torn between two plots and either one of those he could have been the villain of but not both so as the civil war villain he's actually pretty interesting mm-hmm. because he has this right he's what's more that interesting. he's more interesting i'm well, not sure how interesting he was even then well i well we only had three or four episodes i think that he could have been an interesting villain at that point because he has the rivalry with his brother mm-hmm. you know he has well, actually this, like, just really quickly not to interrupt you eric but I, I do just want to point out i think it was a big mistake to following the stuff with Amon and uh, I already forgot his Tar- name again. Tarlock. Yeah, Amon and Tarlock to then follow that up with another sibling rivalry, another brotherly squabble. Another with... waterbender. waterbender yeah, well, I, that, I think that was a huge mistake. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I totally agree. And that, that was a, it was all these mistakes, but and like, but as a spiritual villain, Paul, what you said is a good point that an Unalak whose intention was to break down the spirit and physical realms in the same way that, like, as a mirror of Amon's um, equalizing Equalists. the vendor stuff. Yeah. Right. I think you actually have an interesting plot there, but Unalak doesn't get that motivation until the very end, and it gets all tied up with his, like, I'm going to become the dark avatar thing. And if he had not become a dark avatar, but if he was going to become an avatar that, like, led the spirits into glory or whatever, that could have been really interesting. Um, but it's not there because there's too many things going on and Unalak is really boring. And a more interesting Unalak probably ties the series together in a way that is actually really fascinating. Yeah. And I just – the fact that they call it the dark avatar, <laughs> it just it, – it reminds me of uh, well, Negus it is. It, it is <laughs> – from, from from Scott Pilgrim, like couldn't they like I really would have loved for like the kaiju the big kaiju <laughs> battle like oh we're gonna go get waffles uh, next Tuesday he seems like a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> Just bear in mind it is the super ultra boring generic villain who calls himself the Dark Avatar. So <laughs> he has the imagination of a pebble. So. <laughs> um, God. Okay. La- uh, last big beat, and then I think when we're done with the with the bigger beats, the because we didn't go episode by episode, I want to call out just some things that I really liked. But uh, the last big beat is, of course, how the whole season wraps up, like the the point that we were building towards. And Eric, you sound you sounded particularly excited by what this this does. 
I okay. I love I love where the series ends. I need to back up a, a little bit to describe my feelings on this, which is Cora losing her connection to her past lives, which I think is a big piece of this. And when I was watching this the first time, when I was watching the end of Darkness Falls, the the very first time, I was very frustrated with this episode because I was because it felt like a frustrating villain victory thing that I was sure they were going to reverse. So I was not the first time through. I was not buying into her getting separated from her past lives. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure I was sure they were going to hit the reset button on it, and so it was just annoying. And they don't hit the reset button on it. This is the new status quo. Mm-hmm. The, the, a new Avatar cycle has effectively begun. Korra is the first Avatar in this new Avatar era, right. and everything is different. So the fact that they went all in on this, that they did this really bold move with the Avatar, is great, and it sets up the other big thing, which is that Korra decides not to close the spirit portals. She decides that Juan was wrong, that the spirit world and the and the physical world need to learn to coexist, and that's the way things should be, because it being separate caused all this chaos, and it was just not a good state of affairs. And so we get a new Avatar cycle, effectively, and we get a new era for the world, and this is not something the series is going to let go. This is not like a a toss-off thing of, well, I didn't close the spirit portals, and then next season we get a we get a plot line that doesn't even acknowledge it at all. This is integral to where the series goes from here, and what I really love about this is this is the point when there is no longer any anything from Avatar. Like, Korra is no longer, is, is very literally no longer living in the Shadow of Aang. Like, the, the Shadow of Aang over her spirit is now not there anymore. She has to forge her own path as an Avatar. Right. And she does so by basically upending the entire world. And I love it. I love these kinds of bold moves. I love series that will flip over the table on the status quo. And this series just goes for it. And as much as this was a weak season in some ways, this ending, these ending decisions are awesome. I, I, I totally agree. I love big paradigm shifts like this. Um, and from a, I mean, it's, difficult for me to talk about it since I know what's coming, but from a storytelling standpoint, from a, from a, a fictional standpoint, I think it's awesome. But within the context of these characters in this world that they are all living in now, was it really the best choice for Cora to do that? Oh, Cora, Cora doesn't make the best choice. Cora makes, (laughs) Cora makes the choice that is directly in front of her at the exact moment and figures it out afterwards. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's that's true. <laughs> Arlo, what did you think about it? I I pretty much echo Eric's sentiments. I, I this, uh, not not his cinnamon, his sentiments. I didn't enunciate there. Echo my cinnamon. I echo your cinnamon. Uh, <laughs> I I I was a big fan of of how this wrapped up, uh, and I like how it ties back into. Uh, you know, Juan, we debated whether or not Juan made the right choice, mm-hmm. and I I don't think he did. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like that Korra sort of goes back on, like, one of the principles of, of being the Avatar. She is sort of like the... She's the dark Avatar. Oh, God. Well, I was going <laughs> to say she's more like the, the, the punk rock Avatar in that she, you know, breaks with tradition and, and does what she wants. Um, and the rest and so of the world's got to deal with it. The, true, true, um, but and I guess the, then again, there there is the question again. Like, is it okay that one super powerful person is making this decision for the entire world? But I mean, I mean, 
Yeah, we questioned whether Juan made the right choice, and I'm with you, Arlo. I don't, I, I don't necessarily think that Juan made the right decision when he Juan, closed the, the portals. The thing with Juan is, um, I mean, he the whole concept of the Avatar was created as atonement right. for him unleashing Vatu, and so I think he overcorrected. Yes. Now, um, the problem is uh, the world has now had 10,000 years to grow and change in the shadow of that <laughs> of that overcorrection. So now we've had 10,000 years of humans uh, living basically without spirits and spirits living for all intents and purposes without humans. And now those doors are just opened back up for the first time in 10,000 years. What the hell is going to happen now? Because Paul, not only can spirits come here freely, but we can go there freely. Is that really a good idea? We're entering a new age, bitch. Oh, right. Sorry, I forgot. I, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for for season three. I, I, um, I was sort of waiting to get to this point because season one definitely feels like the, like the aftermath of the world that Ang created, mm-hmm, right? In a lot of ways, and now we are in the world that Korra is creating, and. So this definitely, this is this has laid a foundation for some some very interesting things to come. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, and I like it. I'm I'm behind. I love Cora's like. My gut is telling me this. This is what I got to do. Way of decision making, just because it's so it's so different from Ang and so different from what you'd expect is that. And this is why like losing her past lives almost is not a big deal for Cora. Cora wouldn't know what to do with her past lives anyways. <laughs> Could you That's imagine true. Korra getting the the um the advice that Aang got in the promise? Like she'd have just ignored. Like she'd have been like, "Please stop talking to me." Way earlier than Aang did. <laughs> way earlier. Aang had, I mean, had to learn to do that eventually, but Korra would have been like, "Man, fuck off." I mean, for all intents and purposes, the, the past life thing never really worked out well. Anyways, <laughs> I guess. I mean, Roku was was helpful a few times, but for the most part, they would give advice that Aang didn't really want to hear. And uh, and he, I guess he usually didn't take their advice anyways. And Cora would not have been. I mean, she would have told him to fuck off right away. So, I guess it hardly matters that she doesn't have access to her past lives. Uh, okay. Uh, so a, a couple of things that I, a couple of highlights that I want to throw out here. One of my favorite things that has come out of uh, this season by the end is. Uh, the teamwork between Mako and Bolin, one of my favorite things that this series does. Uh, just the, the tandem bending scenes, anytime those two brothers get to fight alongside each other against a common foe, ah, chills. I love it. Yeah. I love, yeah. The, way, I love the way they play off each other and, and uh, complement each other. Um, uh, let's see what else. Uh, I already mentioned Azula, great, great Lyle's voice. Oh, uh, the single most evil thing that uh, Unalak did in the entire series, tearing down the Ang statue. Oh, that there was a nice cut though, or a nice transition from the down the the the, the face of the downed Ang statue to an unconscious Korra. Yeah, I agree. That was pretty cool. And then, oh, hey, so oh. another Unalak thing. Again, I don't want to talk about this guy, but. <laughs> When he turns into Unavatu, what was up with the voice? Like it was, it was like a mix of their two voices, right? He sounded kind of nasally. Well, I assume it was both actors reading the lines. Right. Yeah, I didn't like it. 
Maybe maybe he just found out with not expecting it that one of them is allergic to the other one, and <laughs> and now there's nothing they can do. <laughs> yeah. That I want a, a buddy sitcom about like what's going on in their their shared giant body. Oh no, thank you, please. <laughs> I do not want to get inside their shared giant body. No, absolutely not. Um, Speak right. for yourself. So and. <laughs> And uh, my favorite shot of these three episodes, my favorite scene of all three episodes, the uh, Mako, Tenzin, Kaya, and Bolin doing their version of the opening title sequence as they step when they step up to defend Korra's body from the horde of dark spirits that we're going to attack. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yes. That was beautiful. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. I loved it. And Boomju is back and being adorable, so that's always good. Yes, Boomju is very important. Boomju. We didn't even talk about the fact that we get a little payoff on uh, on Boomy. Oh yeah, the, where, where it turns out like his bizarre adventures might not be entirely fake. Yeah. yeah, his his like his whole romp through the spirits and trying to control them with his flute and everything was, was almost... actually pretty delightful. I almost lost my shit when it looked like that was going to work. Yes. And for a second, I was like, I think I kind of like this. Like, I would be okay if, like, no one can figure out how to do this except for fucking crazy Boomy, and he plays the music on his flute. I was almost into that, like, actually working. Oh, see, I was like, I, I mean, I liked it. It was it was cute because the, the spirit kind of started dancing with him and everything, but I was like... You know the whole music com- music soothes the savage beast. I don't know if that if I'm down for that trope. And then it turned out it was just that one spirit, and the rest of them still wanted to eat his face. So I was like, "It's working. It's not working." Yeah, um, and I just I want to. We've gotten to hear all these other crazy stories. I want to hear how he would describe how he would tell the story of his trusty flute and the polar bear dog and the spirit possessed mecha tank. <laughs> and I just love when he gets there and he's like, "Well, what? You wouldn't believe me anyway." Yeah. Uh, all right. Any, anything else, you guys? Did we miss anything? No, I, I like. I'm. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, Eric. Finish your thought. I was just saying. I'm. I'm just excited to not have to talk to Un- about Unlock again until the point. The, until okay, the I'm going to talk about Unlock one more time. Oh, for all right. Sake. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> because in in the notes, uh, Paul, that you sent both of us, um. You, I think you asked something like, "How does Unalak work as a villain? You know, compared to Amon or even Ozai." Yeah, and I actually think Ozai is a good point of comparison because all of this harmonic convergence stuff feels like that. Sozin's comet. It feels like Sozin's comet. It feels like a, a giant thing the series should should have been building to from day one, perhaps as. Uh, I believe you guys that the, you know, this whole paradigm shift leads to some great stuff, but it almost feels like a climactic series event. Um, and I, th- I think that's a, that's another like tree of time type thing. I think I mentioned that when uh, we started talking about this season and the idea of the harmonic conversions first came up. It's a huge deal that we just never heard about until we needed to hear about it for for it to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ozai. Uh, Ozai is a much more uh, Ozai is a much better character than Unalak, but I think that's also because we never really had to deal with Ozai. Yeah, we didn't get a lot of Ozai time. Because yeah. Ozai was basically actually not a character. Yeah, R- exactly, exactly. And I think uh, you know Unalak could have been possibly in the the same position if this had been a series long uh, in game in the making. 
Unalak may have been uh, a serviceable villain like Ozai was, because Ozai was was never the real villain. He was the villain, but you know we had Azula, we had Zuko, we had all of that stuff that was actually interesting. So it made the Ozai stuff seem. Uh, I mean, the, the Ozai stuff didn't seem as threadbare. Right. Because all of that was going on. Whereas Unalak becomes front and center, and I think he he is like he he's the first draft of Ozai or or something. Like like the Ozai they actually focused on who sucked. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think I I think that's just a problem with this season overall of everything trying to feel epic and huge, but you know, it there there was no there was no build up to it. It was not structured particularly well. Um, it, it sounds like I didn't like this season, and I just want to make as clear as possible that's not the case. I did like this season. Hey, hey, we got okay. So we got Varric for one thing. This season gave us Varric. Absolutely. This season gave us uh, Nuktuk, Hero of the South. Uh, oh, they, yeah. they can never take that from us. Uh, <laughs> they gave us this huge uh, status quo shift at the end of the uh, at the end of the book, which um, Eric has already told you was going to lead to some great things. So there's definitely good stuff that came out of this season. The villain just didn't happen to be one of those things. That's yeah. that's very true. Yeah, it, it, this season. I mean, this season is. I think the growing pains between a one series show and the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. And I think they had some mixed ideas of what the series was going to be. And I think that this season reflects a conversation amongst the writers about what Korra as a series is going to be. And I think at the end of this season, they had figured it out. Yeah. And we get that going forward. But I really think that's a lot of what's happening here. Um, and. And we, you know, this is, I mean, I obviously I was setting expectations when we came into this season that this was not my, not my favorite season at all. Um, so I will, I will briefly do the same, a, a similar thing for season three, since we're coming into it. This is Eric's sort of like non-spoilery emotional preview for season three. So um, season three gets into some fascinating stuff. I'm really excited to see um, like the rest of Korra, other than this season, it has another villain whose philosophy is interesting. And that helps a lot. Season two's villain is the only one that doesn't have an interesting philosophy. I do have some reservations about the main villain of the season next season, which I'm looking forward to discussing. But we will get the rest of the way out. Korra is back to the idea of villains who have an agenda. Mm-hmm. And and that is something I'm very excited for. So season three cannot come fast enough. I, I'll me. tell you the villain... The villain of next season is the one I am most interested to discuss with you, Eric. Really? <laughs> yeah. With me specifically? With you specifically, because I feel like, and I think you've already debunked this. I think I had mentioned earlier at some point in our core discussion, I think I had said, I, I just assume that the villain, maybe this is off mic. I assume the villain of book three is your least favorite. I just, for some reason I have it in my head, kind of what I know about you and what I know about that character. I assumed, Oh, Eric has got to hate this character. And you were like, no, not at all. He, he is okay. If we're ranking Korra villains, actually if we're ranking Korra seasons, it's the same, which that's interesting that it goes this way. Um, I would say that, that Korra season three and, and the villain of Korra season three are my, are would rank third and the the fourth. Okay. Um, obviously this is a very distant, fourth mm-hmm. this one um but um 
it's in the mix. See, it has a lot of really interesting stuff. I think that there are some extremely weird. It hits a couple of my pet peeves, and you will hear me discuss my pet peeves rather virulently next season, I'm sure. But on the other hand, he's a really fascinating villain. Like, he's a really fascinating character, and we get some amazing stuff. And his plan, his goal is kind of like it, it's interesting and, and um, upsetting in the same way that um, not in the same way, but uh, in the way that Amon sort of had like an upsetting sort of like um, cruel sort of like end game in mind. Um, we get this kind of the same thing in season three. Um, I will say right now that season four's villain and season four as a whole is still my favorite um, and probably will remain the so, but I am really looking forward to seeing season three knowing what problems I have and seeing if like season two, my problems even out a lot more when I get there. But I actually really like season three. It's a little more mixed than one for me, but I'm really looking forward to season three because there's some fascinating shit in season three. And also we're going to have a lot of actual kids show reactions to this (laughs) season three. (laughs) Okay. Right. This is a kid's show. (laughs) There is one thing in particular. There's this episode, I don't know, halfway or two thirds of the way through. I cannot wait to discuss it on the this show is on Nickelodeon level because it is all right amazing. wow this just strap strap in for a moment of wow okay wow I, I, i'm so that's my season three preview there we go i'm, I'm not sure what that's in reference to so i can't wait um hey one one last quick note because uh arlo you were so carefully comparing um uh Unalak to ozai did anybody else get sort of a when uh when Eska and Desna were starting to question, particularly when Desna started questioning their father, did you, there, there was the one moment when, uh, I can't remember who it was that was trying to convince them that, that, uh, Unalak was, was terrible. And, uh, Desna was like, um, our father is a great man. And if he says that this has to happen, this has whatever. Did anybody else get like a, a Zuko vibe there? No, but now that you mention it, sort of. Yeah, I can see that. Just a little bit. They, they, they are the, uh, the very, very subtle, quiet version of Azula and Zuko. <laughs> to Unalak's very boring Ozai. Mm. Okay. Every yeah. every every villain gets the Zuko and Azula they deserve. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. So uh, on that note, um, we don't. We're not doing any. Uh, any chapters next week so there's no i can't ask for your prediction arlo other than uh, what oh. do you predict oh no 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 we can ask for it we have a title for the next yes. one and i so we have a title yes yeah, so so the next thing we're going to talk about is uh the actually you know what let's wait let's when i do the outro i'll ask you how about that okay yeah. all right so thank you everybody at home for joining us. Uh, as always, you can find links to this in all of our past episodes at the website, theavatarreturns.com. Links will also be posted on our parent show site, gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Make sure you never miss another exciting episode. While you're there, please be a hero and rate us or write us a review and help spread the word. If you'd like to contact us, please send your correspondence, care of monkey Yahtzee, at tarpodcast at gmail.com and of course you can always find us all over social media uh, facebook.com slash the avatar returns or twitter.com slash tarpodcast and on twitter I am at haunt1013 Eric is at salon that's S-A-A-L-O-N and Arlo is at unplugged crazy 
Uh, next, uh, as we've been doing all through our Legend of Korra run, we'll be taking an opportunity between books to discuss uh, the next volume in the official Avatar The Last Airbender graphic novel series from Dark Horse Comics, Volume 3, The Rift. So, Arlo, based on that title, what are you expecting? In The Rift, a 1990 film directed by Juan Piquer Simon, starring Jack Scalia and Arlie Ermey and Ray Wise, an experimental submarine, the Siren 2, is sent to find out what happened to the Siren 1, which has mysteriously disappeared in a submarine rift. Things go awry when they begin to find things that shouldn't be there. Can't wait. Wait, which, wait, wait. wait. W- which one of those is playing Aang? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, definitely, uh, definitely Arlie Ermy. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. Nice. All right. Well, so join us here, uh, next week for that, uh, find out how close Arlo comes. And then, uh, after that, we'll get into, uh, the legend of Korra book three, which is titled by the way, change. So change, change, uh, until then, remember if I wanted some ball of evil lurking over my shoulder all the time, I'd have stayed home with my mother-in-law. Tree